0: Welcome to the first special mini-series of the History of Africa podcast. This series is dedicated to celebrating our achievement of 100 Patreon supporters, and was a topic of our supporters' choice. If you'd like to support the show and help us reach our next goal and choose the topic of our next special episode or mini-series, please do so by joining us at patreon.com slash historyofafrica. Now, on to our special presentation of the Sokoto Jihad Jihad is a word which is simultaneously incredibly easy and incredibly difficult to define. This is not because it is difficult to translate, as in the most literal sense, the Arabic word translates quite well to the English word struggle, which seems, you know, simple enough. And in many cases, the term jihad is used in a nearly identical manner. One of the most commonly cited hadith, or sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, is that the greatest jihad is the jihad against one's own passions. While the exact authenticity of this hadith is sometimes debated, the sentiment it expresses reflects well the attitude of mainline Islamic scholarship towards the meaning of jihad. In the writings of Muslim philosophers and scholars, many have spilled endless ink pondering the ideal response to Jihad al-Akbar, the greater Jihad, the inner turmoil to fight your negative impulses and do what's right. There also exists Jihad al qalam or the struggle of the pen, sometimes also translated as the struggle of words, the need to act and speak honestly, and to spread the lifestyle of Islam through rhetoric. But let's be honest for a minute. That is almost certainly not the connotation that you, or I, or basically anyone else listening associates with the term jihad. Sometimes, when, let's say, politically infamous groups make use of certain terminology, the word becomes undeniably and irrevocably attached to that group in common discourse. Similarly to jihad, the German word führer is an innocent term that means nothing more than leader. But, because of a certain historical context, nobody thinks about it that way anymore, right? So, if you have even a passing familiarity with current events, the word jihad likely doesn't invoke the idea of an internal struggle against negative urges or the necessity of speaking the truth. No, the term jihad produces an image of extreme religious conservatism and violent fanaticism, groups like Al-Qaeda, al Shabab, Tair al-Sham, and the Islamic State. In fact, this association has become so prevalent that many people will incorrectly translate the term jihad not as struggle, but as holy war. And while translating jihad exclusively as holy war might not be accurate, the association between the concept of struggle and holy war is not entirely off-base historically. Jihad bisayf or the struggle of the sword, did not refer to any ordinary clash, raid, or war between Muslims and non-Muslims. No, it referred specifically to a divinely ordained war. A war between a Muslim power and a non-Muslim power to extract tribute, defeat a rival, or capture an important city could not be considered a jihad. In practice, the term struggle of the sword was rarely invoked unless the local ulama, or religious class, designated a war to be righteous. The modern idea of jihadism as an ideology associated with extremist, typically non-state actors emerged in the mid-20th century. And, much like how other events in the mid-20th century gave Fiora a negative connotation in the English language... So too has the rise of these groups cemented the concept of jihad as an idea associated with Islamic extremism. Perhaps nowhere in the Islamic world, however, has the concept of struggle by the sword been so historically significant as in Sahelian West Africa. In the 18th and 19th centuries, as Europe was undergoing its own so-called Age of Revolution, Sahelian West Africa was also undergoing a period of immense and rapid change. In this period, a series of political and religious movements swept across Sahelian West Africa. One movement, the so called Sokoto Jihad, would prove particularly consequential in Sahelian history, being on the short list of the most consequential events in the history of West Africa more generally, and arguably in human history altogether. The movement was an earthquake, completely upending and transforming the landscape of Sahelian political, economic, social, and religious lives, and with aftershocks continuing to be felt to this day. And, as with any other historical development undergoing such immense impact, the legacy of the Sokoto Jihad is far from uncontested. Even the name Sokoto Jihad is a matter of controversy, with some scholars preferring the term Sokoto Revolution. In this mini-season of the History of Africa podcast, we will not only explore the events, trends, and controversies of the Sokoto Jihad, but also seek to resolve how the monumentous event should be remembered. Is the Sokoto Jihad the ideological ancestor of the violent jihadist movements in contemporary West Africa, such as Boko Haram or Nusrat al-Islam? Or rather, do the Sokoto Revolution's leaders belong on the pantheon of great historical revolutionaries, alongside names like Jefferson, Bolivar, Nkrumah, Sun Yat-sen, Mao, Lenin, and Robespierre? Or, better yet, are we committing folly by even trying to shoehorn this event into this dichotomy of terrorist or revolutionary in the first place? Do the events of the Sokoto Jihad demand re evaluation without needless and fallacious comparison to completely distinct phenomena? Keep these questions in mind as, without further ado, we dive into the history of the Sokoto Jihad. Part 1 The Seven Cities and the Seven Bastards. The setting of the great historical drama of the Sokoto Jihad is Qasar Hausa, a region that exists in the borderland around the modern countries of Nigeria, Chad, and Niger. The name of the region is derived from the majority ethnic group in the area, the Hausa, with Qasar Hausa meaning Hausa country. So, before we begin to interrogate the historical circumstances and legacy of the Sokoto Jihad, we need to understand the setting in which it took place. The early history of the Hausa people is a complicated one. While popular stereotypes of Africa paint the continent as illiterate before European colonization, this is certainly not the case in Kassar Hausa, nor is it really true for a good portion of the African continent more generally, but that's another story. But while later periods of Hausa history are narrated by mostly reliable written chronicles, the region's early history is largely steeped in unreliable semi-mythological traditions. The most famous retelling of Hausa Ethnogenesis comes from the legend of Bayajida. The legend differs in many details from town to town, but the various versions of the story share a similar enough overall narrative. The most commonly known version of the story is that recorded by Abdul Abdurrahman, the court historian of the Emirate of Daura. Our story begins at an unspecific point in the far distant past. A group of Canaanites in the modern-day countries of Israel and Palestine decided to leave their homeland in the Near East. First, they moved into Egypt, where they mingled and integrated into the local Egyptian society. But after being disturbed by a series of violent uprisings and social collapse, the Canaanites were forced to flee in multiple directions. Some dispersed south into Kush and Ethiopia, while others fled west into Libya. Furthermore, this westward traveling group itself split into two, with one half staying in Libya and North Africa, while the other crossed the Sahara Desert and populated the Sahel. The ancestors of the Hausa represented the last of these migrations, moving from the western Sahel into the area that would become Qasar Hausa. There they set up Sohombirni, the first major city. Curiously, the ancestral Hausa lived in a matriarchal society. The men of the cities and villages were too busy farming and hunting, so naturally, the responsibility of things like government fell to the women. And even more unusually, the woman who was granted the title of queen was expected to never marry or have children, as the queen was far too pure for sexual activity. Our legend then flashes forward to the ninth century AD. The ancestral hausa are ruled by a woman named Daurama. For reasons not specified, Daurama sought to move her capital away from the old city of Tsohon-Berni, and began to look for a site where she could establish a new home of her own. One day, Darama stumbled across the site of an old well, infested by an enormous serpent. Darama believed that the presence of the snake had to be a sign, that her ancestors were telling her that this is where they'd settled in the past. So, she decided that this site was to be the location of her new city. Naming the town Daura after a shortened version of her own name, the city soon grew into the largest and most important settlement in the area. At first, the people were confused and challenged by the snake in the well, He was very protective of his property, and whenever they tried to take water, he would lash out at the people and bite them. But one day, the very thirsty inhabitants of Daura decided to sing a song to the snake. The snake, enjoying the song, decided to sing back, agreeing that he would let the people pass to get water, but only if they vowed to only get it on Fridays. So, every Friday, the people would come to the well, and both the people and the snake grew familiar with this schedule. Eventually, the people grew so used to the serpent that they decided to give him a name, Sarki, or King. Apart from his restriction of the town's only well water, Sarki would also occasionally slither out of the well to terrorize the people of Daura whenever he felt like. The serpent would only retreat from his attacks when he was satisfied with a series of songs, dances, and sacrifices. And this peculiar lifestyle is just how things went in Daura. That is, until a mysterious traveler arrived in the city. Going by the name of Abu Yazid, the man was an Arab prince from the city of Baghdad, located in modern-day Iraq. The prince had been forced to flee from his home city after Baghdad was besieged and conquered by a neighboring mysterious evil queen. The prince had once been set to rule his home city, but his plans were suddenly interrupted when Baghdad was besieged and conquered by a mysterious evil queen. Accompanied only by his wife, a few dozen loyal soldiers, and a small band of slaves, the prince made the grueling trek across the Sahara. After a long and arduous journey through the hazardous desert, Abu Yazid finally arrived in civilization. He had come to Ngazargamo, the capital city of the greatest kingdom in the eastern Sahel, the empire of Kanem. At first, things went well enough. The king of Kanem was pleased with the new villager, and even offered Yazid his daughter's hand in marriage, an offer which the prince accepted. But when rumor got out that Yazid was involved with a plan to assassinate and overthrow the king, the prince was forced to flee in the middle of the night with his new wife and a single slave. From Kanem, he fled south, stopping at a blacksmith along the way to purchase a new sword, before continuing on his journey with no particular destination in mind. The prince wandered through the wilderness with only the will of God to guide him. Eventually, he was brought to the fledgling city of Doura.
1: We'll be back after a quick break.
0: How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame
1: Stories wherever you get your podcasts. Thirsty from his long journey
0: from Ngazargamu, Prunz Yazid's first impulse was to find some water to drink. So, when he first met someone from the town, a local elderly woman, his first question for her was where he could find the town's well. The woman, with fear in her eyes, desperately tried to warn Yazid that he could not get his water today, that the great serpent Sarki wouldn't let him have water until Friday. But Yazid, very thirsty, didn't listen to her, and proceeded to confidently go to the well anyways. Upon reaching the well, Yazid tried to pull up the water bucket from the bottom, only to realize that something was holding it down. Whatever it was at the bottom, it was very heavy. After pulling with all of his strength, Yazid was able to bring the bucket to the surface. Curled around the bucket was an enormous figure. Abu Yazid came face to face with the great snake, Sarki. Thinking quickly, just as the snake was coiling back to strike, Yazid drew his sword and, with some divine help by God, decapitated the beast. Yazid then confidently drank his water and stuffed the head of Sarki into his bag as a trophy. The coming Friday, the people of Daura assembled outside of the well to give Sarki his typical song and dance to let them pass. But when the snake didn't emerge, one young man cautiously approached the well and peered down. After informing the townsfolk that there was a headless serpentine corpse at the bottom of the well, the people broke into celebration. Finally, they could get water without fear. The queen, Daurama was the happiest of all. To give thanks, she offered half of her lands to any man who could prove that he was the one who slew the tyrannical Sarki. When Yazid revealed that he had been the one to kill the snake, the people of Daura broke into song, singing the song that they had prepared for Sarki, but substituting the serpent's name with that of Yazid's. And while this detail varies a lot from different versions of the story, the version shared here claims that this moment is when Yazid earned the nickname that would stick with him for the rest of his life, Bayajidda, which means he who did not understand. To everyone's shock, though, Yazid demanded a different reward from Daurama's original offer. Rather than receiving half her land, he wanted her hand in marriage. The queen considered the idea, and ultimately agreed on the condition that the two were to never have sex. Instead, Daurama offered her new husband a domestic slave, a woman named Bagwaria who would bear him children in her stead. Not long after the marriage, news broke that the enslaved woman Bagwaria was pregnant with Yazid's child. Baguaria, apparently seeing this pregnancy as a major opportunity for her own social advancement, decided to give her child a rather audacious name when he was born. Their son was named Karapdagiri or he who will seize the town with this not so subtle hint about their intentions for the future rulership of Daura, now public Daurama was sent into a panic realizing that she was in danger of losing control over her kingdom the queen decided that she would have to have a child of her own with Yazid after not too long Daurama had also fallen pregnant and returned Bagwaria's passive-aggressive naming choice in kind Daurama named her newborn son Bawul Roughly meaning, give it back. Decades later, after Daurama, Yazid, and Baguaria had all since passed away, Bawo was crowned as the new king of Daura. This marked the end of the tradition of female rulers in Kasar Hausa and instituted a long history of patriarchal rule. Baguaria's son would never see the throne, but rather than killing his political rival, Bawo instead kept his half-brother around as a court magician, who would perform and lead rituals on Bawo's behalf. Both Bawo and Karapdegiri would go on to have many important children. Bawo would sire five sons, each of whom would go on to found an important city of their own. Joining them was the only son that Yazid had sired with that princess from Kanem. Remember her? Alongside Daura, these six cities would go on to become the most important urban centers in northern Nigeria. Due to their unrivaled prestige that came from their founding from the legitimate sons and grandsons of Abu Yazid, these cities earned the nickname Hausa Bakwai, or the Seven Hausa. Meanwhile, Karapdagiri would sire a whopping seven sons, each of whom would become successful rulers in their own right. Five of Karapdagiri's sons would go on to become the foundational ancestor of the Ija, Nupe, Gabari, Gongawa, and Yorba nations, respectively. While two others would go on to found important Hausa kingdoms of their own, Kebi and Zamfara. Due to their descent from Karapdagiri, the son of a slave woman, these nations and cities were labeled derisively as the Banza Bakwai, or Seven Bastards. And that, according to the legend of Bayajida, is where the Hausa and their neighbors come from. <laughs> With the entire legend recounted, what is the actual historical value of the Bayejidda legend? How much, if any of the legend, represents an account of real, material history? Well, the answer to the latter question is probably little to none of it. Practically none of the story's plot points, from the migration from Canaan, to the Singing Snake, to the 14 nations and cities founded by the great Abu Yazid's descendants, are accepted by mainline historical scholars as history that we should take seriously. Even those who are more charitable about the historical value of the legend do not come anywhere close to suggesting that the legend should be treated as a reliable documentary source. Rather, the historical community generally views the Bayajida legend in a similar light to other pseudo-historical mythological tales, such as England's Arthurian legend, Ethiopia's Nagast. China's Three Sovereigns and Five Emperors, or the Aeneid of Ancient Rome. While the story of Bayajidda should not be taken seriously as a reflection of historical events that really happened, it is certainly possible that maybe, through careful examination, we can find some glimmers of a true story within the legend. So, with all that said, let's take a look at the academic community's reconstruction of Hausa history. So, who are the Hausa, and where do they come from? Well, like the vast majority of people, it's impossible to pinpoint an exact moment of ethnogenesis. After all, the process of forming a cultural identity is a slow and gradual one that takes place usually over hundreds, if not thousands, of years. Based on genetic and linguistic evidence, the current working theory is that the Hausa people originated from a group of nomadic people called the proto chadic who arrived in the area of modern northern Nigeria, Chad, and Niger, from somewhere in the southern sahara sometime between 9000 and 6000 bc these people would be the ancestors of not only the hausa but of all the people who speak languages in the chadic family including bura kamwe ngas and many many more soon after their arrival these proto-chadic people encountered a small population of sedentary farming settlements whose material culture mirrored that of other neolithic cultures throughout west africa These two groups gradually assimilated together into a single group, who anthropologists call the Proto-Hausa, or ancestors of the modern Hausa people. These Proto-Hausa peoples would be further influenced by interactions with two major groups. The Kanuri people, a.k.a. one of the people of the famous Kanem Empire, significantly influenced the Hausa culture and language. Modern Hausa contains many Kanuri loanwords, for example, while genetic evidence suggests a great deal of familial intermixing between the two groups. There is one more influential group that we need to introduce, though, a group which may not only help us put the pieces together to understand the true history behind the legend of Bayajidda, but also the introduction of the religion that would become so central to Hausa identity. In the year 943 AD, on the other side of the Sahara, a battle was raging. At the time, North Africa was inhabited primarily by the various Amazigh peoples. The Amazigh, more commonly known by their epithet, Berber, are the indigenous peoples of North Africa. Centuries prior, North Africa had been one of the earliest conquests of the Islamic Khalifat, leading to the introduction of Arab culture and the Islamic religion to the area. Now, this whole situation was very, very complicated and worthy of a podcast season all its own, but to vastly, vastly oversimplify, the vast majority of Amazigh peoples eventually adopted the Islamic faith and some elements of Arab culture to varying degrees such as names and inheritance rights, while in other ways preserving much of their unique North African heritage. In the 10th century, most of North Africa was ruled by the Fatimid Caliphate. In the 10th century, most of North Africa was ruled by a state called the Fatimid Caliphate. But not everyone was happy with their rule. Notably, there was one Amazigh religious scholar who was very unhappy with the Fatimids. His name was Abu Yazid, and yes, that name should be ringing a lot of bells right now. Yazid, the son of a wealthy trans-Saharan merchant and a West African woman, was born in the West African city of Gao around 883 AD before moving north with his father. As a young man, Abu Yazid spent a great deal of time studying the Islamic faith, particularly from a minority sect that was very popular in parts of North Africa, known as Ibadism. Abu Yazid would eventually begin calling for the overthrow of the Fatimids, and attracted a great deal of very devoted support, with many of his supporters even viewing him as the new messiah. Yazid and his followers launched their attack against the Fatimids, and even had some early success, but after nearly a decade of fighting, Yazid and his followers were eventually defeated by their Fatimid enemies. Yazid was killed, and his remaining followers were either imprisoned or exiled. Okay, so what exactly does this have to do with the Hausa? Well, according to some historians, the answer is a lot. A hypothesis first posited by the famous historian of West Africa, H.R. Palmer, claims that Bayajida or the Abu Yazid of Hausa legend is in fact a folk memory of events linked to Abu Yazid, the Amazigh religious leader and his revolt against the Fatimids. According to Palmer and later supporters of the hypothesis, A group of Yazid's most loyal followers and supporters chose to flee south of the Sahara after their leader was killed. First, they arrived in Kanem, before moving on to Qasar Hausa. Palmer believes that the legend of Bayajidda should be viewed not as real history, but as a sort of historical metaphor for real history. Bayajidda killing the snake represents the Amazigh arrivals overthrowing the pre-Islamic kings and their power structures. After all, snakes are a widely used motif in West African traditional religions. And, in the legend, Daurama even believes the snake to be a religious sign, a sign that her ancestors had settled the land in the past. Which seems to imply that, in the legend, snakes did hold some kind of important religious symbolism for the hausa. The myth also seemingly mirrors a similar tale among the Soninke people on the other side of the Sahel. In the Soninke legend, a great hero kills a tyrannical snake that lives in a well which is also widely interpreted by scholars to be a metaphor for the introduction of Islam to the Saninke. So, the killing of Sarki is a metaphor for refugees who had followed Abu Yazid, fleeing into Qasar Hausa, introducing the Islamic faith, and killing the snake of pre-Islamic Hausa religion. The part of the story where Abu Yazid establishes a patrilineal system of inheritance also makes sense. Amazigh inheritance laws are patrilineal so it would make sense that the predominantly Amazigh refugees would support moving to a new system of inheritance that aligned more with their cultural perceptions. And the cherry on top of everything, just like with Kanuri, is there is a great deal of linguistic evidence to indicate some historical cultural interaction between the Hausa and Amazigh. So, this case seems pretty plausible, right? Maybe, but the hypothesis is far from universally accepted. Critics of the Amazigh-Refugees hypothesis argue that it leans a bit too heavily on something called euhemerism, or the belief that mythology always represents distorted accounts of real events. Euhemerism, while definitely still present, is generally not looked upon very favorably among contemporary academics. This is due to the fact that, by its nature, the approach requires scholars to pick and choose which elements of the story reflect reality, while also leaving the agency entirely with the scholar to interpret the myth and connect it to real phenomenon. As a result, euhemerism is, more often than not, simply speculation in disguise. Using some examples from the Bayajida story, who's to say that the killing of the serpent necessarily represents a religious change? I mean, the snake is literally named King. So, if the story does reflect real events, could it not just as plausibly represent the overthrowing of a particular monarch? And, yeah, there are some important details in the story that proponents of the hypothesis kinda gloss over. For example, in the legend, Abu Yazid flees from his home in Baghdad after being toppled by an evil queen. The inclusion of a queen is a strange detail since Abu Yazid, the Amazigh rebel leader, didn't fight against a queen, but against a male caliph. If we're willing to write off this particular detail of the story as just a myth, why shouldn't we write off all of it? What makes this particular detail worthy of writing off, and not the rest of them? How should we decide which parts of the story are based on true events, and which ones are simply legend? See what I mean with how euhemerism can very quickly devolve into just pure speculation? The elements of Hausa history that are said to be explained by the Amazigh hypothesis, such as the conversion to Islam around the 10th century, and the presence of Amazigh loanwords in the Hausa language, are more easily explained by things like the trans-Saharan trade networks, rather than an army of Amazigh refugees heading south. Meanwhile, certain elements of the story, such as the house having roots in Canaan, can be very easily identified as the product of later views of Islamic scholars on race. You see, the dominant theory of race in the Islamic world in early Christendom was based on a strange theory that placed the various sons of Noah as being the origins of the races of Europe, Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. Due to a strange set of bad translations and folk etymologies, Abrahamic scholars long supported the notion that Africans, all Africans, were the descendants of Ham, the son of Noah who was the forebearer of the Canaanites. The story of the Hamites migrating out of Canaan and spreading throughout Africa conforms very well to the legend of Bayajida, which implies that this element of the story was introduced by later generations of Islamic scholars who were familiar with the idea that Africans were all descended from Hamites. It's also worth noting that this idea of Africans as the descendants of Ham was also used to justify a lot of discrimination against Amazigh and other African peoples through the allegation that the Canaanites were cursed by God. So, here's my view on the matter, and one that I will espouse going forward. I think the hypothesis that the legend of Bayajidda has some roots in real events, particularly the revolt of Abu Yazid, is certainly plausible. But it lacks the specific evidence necessary to move it from the realm of plausibility into the realm of likelihood. Maybe some written records will be discovered that explicitly say that many of Yazid's followers fled south into the Sahara, or maybe some evidence will emerge that Ibadi Islam, the sect that Yazid adhered to, became widespread in northern Nigeria around this time. But until then, the legend of Bayajida is a legend, though still very much an important part of understanding Hausa culture and history. So, Bayajida legend aside, let's look at the history and civilization of Qasar Hausa, so we can begin understanding the setting of this epic story. <laughs> The place where mythology ends and history begins is always a difficult line to draw, and the same is true here. With that said, though, scholarship on Hausa history generally ends the mythic period sometime in the late 1300s. So, let's set the stage for that era. And, keep in mind, to save time, I'm going to be talking about a lot, and I mean a lot, of interesting history in the form of broad strokes. Just to give some context for the titular Sokoto Jihad. Hausa history is totally future-season material, so please don't leave this episode thinking that I've given you anything close to a full view of the history of Qasar Hausa. Historians generally agree that Islam had been present in Qasar Hausa well before the 14th century. However, prior to this era, Islam had remained a lifestyle practiced only by a small minority. The predominant religious culture of Qasar Hausa was still primarily molded by the traditional religion of the Hausa and their ancestors. The traditional Hausa religion was and is not exactly a single religion at all, but rather more of a familial affair. Religious activities were typically administered by the most powerful member of a local extended family unit, and varied a lot from family to family. Each family worshipped different, though sometimes overlapping, sets of spirits, or iskoki, and were led in this worship by a boka. The Boka, plural bokaye, were religious leaders whose role resembled a hybrid between a priest and a magician. They not only provided religious knowledge, but were also said to possess considerable supernatural powers. One oral tradition from the city of Kanu claims that a particular Boka from before the arrival of Bayajida could perform magic like slaying elephants by merely pointing a stick at them, or that he could communicate with the spirits to tell the future. Apart from these more mythical and magical elements, though, Bokaye did play a more material role in the community as well, often administering medicine in the form of herbal remedies. Family heads also typically enjoyed a great deal of not only religious, but also political power. Each city in Casarhausa was ruled by its own king, forming a network of semi-independent city-states under the rulership of an overarching king. Prior to the 13th century, Hausa kings were generally elected by an oligarchical council of roughly a dozen heads of local extended families. Due to their double status as religious, political, and family leaders, English-language scholarship often labels these family heads as priest-chiefs, though I personally prefer the more neutral label priest-nobles. These priest-nobles elected the king from a short list of viable heirs for the position of king, exercised influence over the king's ability to make laws, and even potentially had the power to, at times, remove unpopular kings, though this last power is a matter of considerable historical debate. One of the oldest Hausa cities, Kanu, was run in this manner. But in the earliest documented instance of what would become a trend in Hausa history, the political status quo in Kanu shifted dramatically in the late 14th century. The shift in politics of Kanu revolved around the rule of a young Sarki of Kanu, a man named Yaji. To make a long and interesting story short, Yaji was born into a period of political chaos in his city. His father, the old king, was a fairly devoted Muslim in a time when this was pretty rare in Qasar Hausa, and he sought to make his city resemble socially other Islamic kingdoms. He tried to convince the city's non Muslim inhabitants to pay jizya, a special tax that Muslim states charge non Muslim residents in exchange for waiver from military service. After some resistance to the tax, the non-Muslim residents were forced to relent after the king threatened to burn down a great tree that the non-Muslims viewed as sacred. Although, he did compromise, choosing to appoint some of the unhappy non-Muslim leaders to the city's council, to get them a bit more on his good side. However, and we're not sure if this is connected to the king's religious practices or just a coincidence, the king was soon after murdered by his brother. Some scholars believe that the two factors were connected, as the brother's seven-year-long reign was marked by an unbroken peace between the Muslim monarchy and non-Muslim nobility. Sarki Yaji inherited the throne of Kanu seven years after his father's assassination. Almost immediately, he showed an ambition to expand his own power and influence over the nobility. Early in his reign, Yaji won several victorious battles against neighboring towns and villages, expanding Kanu's influence further beyond the city walls. But the biggest turning point of his reign occurred when a group of traveling Soninke people arrived in his court. The Soninke, who are most famous as the ethnic group who most likely formed the basis of the famous Ghana Empire of Antiquity, had adopted Islam for quite a while now, and as a result possessed a more orthodox Islamic outlook than the majority of even officially Muslim Hausa. Yaji's visitors had studied the Quran. They were educated in Islamic legal thought and philosophy and possessed extensive knowledge of orthodox Islamic practice. Yaji meanwhile was officially Muslim and very enthusiastic to learn more about the faith, but had never really had the opportunity to learn more about the religion. The leader of the visitors, a man named Zaite, provided the eager Yaji with instruction on when and how to pray in the traditional style, how to prepare halal food, and other elements in the daily life of a practicing Muslim. Yaji, impressed by Zaite's knowledge, appointed him as his imam, and began mandating Islamic practice in Kano. The king, without consent from his council of noble priests, of course, mandated that all the people of Kanu were to pray five times each day, facing Mecca. He also began the construction of Kanu's first mosque, built underneath the holy tree of the pagans. The construction of this mosque was the final straw. One of the non-Muslim lords of Kano, in a show of his displeasure, decided to get together with some men and, uh, poop in the mosque. Of all things, this juvenile display led to, dare I say, a comedic series of events. The king would send patrols to the mosque to keep the pagans out, but they kept finding ways to sneak in and uh, do their business in the holy site. Seeing no other solution... Nisarki and his advisors chose to pray to God for help. And God delivered. One day, when the noble tried to sneak into the mosque, he was randomly blinded. To conclude the story, Yaji is then recorded delivering the perfect punchline. Telling the lord to go be king among the blind. But, um, who else but Yaji? Despite some of the more supernatural elements of the story... Yaji is generally considered to be a real historical figure, and the account of his reign in the Kanu Chronicle is mostly considered to reflect, if not a perfect recounting of events, at least a reflection of genuine historical themes. In this case, the main theme on the account of Yaji's rule seems to revolve around a struggle between three opposing forces in the politics of medieval Qasar Hausa. These forces are the Sarki, the predominantly pagan nobility, and a class of typically non-Hausa, Islamic religious elites. Now, in the case of Yaji, he chose to side pretty much fully with the Islamic elites, and pretty straightforwardly opposed the interests of the nobility. But this was not the case everywhere all the time. Throughout the long history of Qasar Hausa, different Sarkis would choose to handle the issue of tension between Islamic and pagan noble elites in their own ways, while some, like Yaji, sided primarily with the Islamic elites... Others placed a premium on the loyalty of the pagan nobles, while others tried to balance the issue, providing favor to both sides and forcing compromise between them when possible. Overall, this latter option was the most common outcome, especially in areas of southern Hausa where Islam was generally introduced much later. While official Islamic practice arose relatively early in Kanu, other cities took longer to adopt their religion. The Sarki of Zazal, one of the southernmost cities in Hausa, didn't officially adopt Islam until the 1450s almost a century after the reign of Yaji so with that said about the religious life in Qasar Hausa what was life like for the average subject of the Sarki <laughs> Life in medieval Kassar Hausa was not defined by a strict urban-rural dichotomy. When it came to the size and purpose of land, the Hausa believed in 17 distinct categories of land development. And don't worry, we're not going to go over all 17, but just a select few of the most important. On the highest end of the scale, there was the Birni, or Walled City. These were the central political hubs of the Hausa. The state in city-state. The Walled City is where the king lived where his ministers met the center of major interregional trade and scholarship. The economy of these walled cities were typically based on a combination of trades and crafts. Below only the Berni in terms of importance was the gari, or major town. A gari was typically a fairly populated settlement, with more than a few thousand inhabitants and often even a large fence or palisade protecting its exterior. Major towns often had their own kings, judiciaries, and religious centers, they also held varying degrees of independence from their neighbors. Sometimes they possessed total independence, functioning as their own states. At times, they paid tributes to larger and more powerful cities nearby, and sometimes they acted in practice more like vassals to their larger neighbors than as truly independent states. Dotting the countryside between the major towns and walled cities were two distinct types of rural settlements. The Rinji, or Slave Village and the Kaoye, or free village. Free villages were typically small, consisting of only a few hundred households at the most. These villages were ruled by a nobleman, who himself was almost always the subject of a nearby town or city. But surprisingly often, large collections of free villages banded together to form their own political confederations, acting as something of a counterweight to their urban neighbors. Slave villages, on the other hand, were communities populated almost entirely by enslaved laborers. The towns were hereditarily owned, usually by the king of a nearby town or city, who would lease the property out to a political ally who would in turn act as the village holder. That ally, in turn, hired an overseer, or gandu. They acted not only as a slave driver, but also essentially as the daily governor of the town. The village's enslaved residents were then made to tend a series of nearby crops. Life in the Rinji revolved around tending two nearby fields. A large field called Gando, which is where enslaved workers tended to crops that were designed for sale, and the Gaona, or a small plot where enslaved workers tended to crops that were meant for their own consumption. The profit from sales of Gando products went up the chain of command, with the overseer taking some for himself, the village holder taking some for himself, and the remaining profit going to the king in the form of taxes. Everyone wins, that is, except for the people doing the actual work. Below the slave and free villages, in terms of scale of development, are gida or farmsteads. Farmsteads were typically smallholder, subsistence agricultural communities, populated by maybe a dozen or less extended families. In everyday life, these farmsteads were socially and economically self-sufficient only ever interacting with wider political systems when it came time to pay taxes. Finally, at the lowest end of development was the Bortali, or nomad lands. These lands were home to no permanent residents, with the only people living there being nomadic pastoralists who allowed their herds of cattle and sheep to graze. Along with tending to cattle, these nomads often acted as the lifeblood of Kasarhausa, transporting goods, news, and ideas alike from city market to city market. These nomads will play a major role in the rest of our story, so keep them in mind. The division between rural and urban society is a recurring theme throughout Hausa history. The distinct economic modes of the city, the farmstead and the pastoral camp, led to the development of noticeably distinct cultures in these areas. In the city, the prevalence of markets led to the development of a distinctly cosmopolitan culture. Major walled cities were ethnically diverse, If you traveled through the streets of a major market city like Kano, Katsina, or Biram on a busy day, you would undoubtedly have heard dozens of languages. Contrary to a popular viewpoint of African history, the Sahara Desert was far from an impassable obstacle. Caravans traveled through the desert in a near-constant stream, hopping from Oasis Town to Oasis Town in the north to gather supplies until arriving on the other side. Merchants were the most common group to make the journey. West Africa offered many attractive commodities to North African customers, including gold, kola nuts, medicinal plants, leather, exotic foods, ivory, and enslaved workers. Meanwhile, North Africans sold products like potash, a product used to make glass dyes and soap, finished goods, cowrie shells, and salt. Merchants in Hausa made great profits acting as middlemen, facilitating trade between North and West Africa while taking a healthy chunk of profit from the transaction. Hausa cities also contained populations of artisan, who produced goods themselves to be sold in distant and domestic markets alike. Tools, baskets, textiles, dyes, charms, medicine, leather, musical instruments, and more could all be found in the stands of local craftsmen in Hausa markets. Perhaps the most valuable trade of them all was the manufacture of books. While for now it was just a small, niche industry, the manufacture of books was also an important economic institution in Kassarhausa, though at least for now, the nearby kingdom of Borno, the successor state of the Empire of Khanum, dominated the Saharan book trade. Merchants were not the only people crossing the Sahara. Scientists, scholars, pilgrims, and tourists alike made the journey between Hausa and northern Africa regularly and this was no one-sided trail. West African Muslims, including wealthy Hausa, often made the trek north of the Sahara. This was especially common during the Hajj, when wealthy Muslims from around the world made a pilgrimage to the holy city of Mecca. Academia also provided a reason to travel, which brings me to a historical myth about Islam in West Africa, which I call the myth of Impure Sahelian Islam. The myth claims that Islam in early modern West Africa was so heavily syncretized with pre-Islamic cultural practices that it hardly resembled Islam at all. Like many historical myths, the myth of impure Sahelian Islam is based on some level of fact. It is true, as we'll see in more detail, that many people of the Sahel, including many Hausa, did practice a form of Islam that was heavily syncretized with local religious practice. But, as is the case with many historical myths, the impure Sahelian Islam myth is not entirely false. It's not like there was a complete absence of orthodox Sunni Islamic thought. Notably, scholarly Islam in West Africa was dominated by the Maliki Madab, or School of Islamic Legal Jurisprudence. Maliki scholars tend to be a bit more interpretive with their view of Islamic law, compared to the more literalistic Shafi'i legal philosophy in Egypt and East Africa, Maliki legal thought places a bigger emphasis on the makasid al-sharia, or the purpose of the law, rather than a straightforward interpretation of the law as written. Now, even though the practice of Islam among the general populace was somewhat syncretic, that was not at all the case among the populations of urban scholars and judges. These scholars were, by all accounts, as committed to orthodox Islamic practice as it gets. They studied texts written by mainline Islamic scholars, usually from the Maliki legal tradition, and often expressed outward disapproval of the more syncretized elements of their nation's Islamic practice. They labeled syncretic Islam as Bidah, a term that in Islamic religious studies roughly corresponds to the concept of heresy or harmful religious innovation. The Islamic scholarly tradition in the Sahel was also geographically diverse. Today, the best-known center of West African medieval scholasticism is the city of Timbuktu. But, starting in the 15th century, the Hausa city of Kanu quickly developed into a prominent academic center in its own right, equaling and sometimes even surpassing the intellectual prestige of Timbuktu. Other cities, like Katsina, also became notable for their scholarship in the Islamic tradition. In short, while many people did practice syncretized Islam in Qasar Hausa, there did also exist an indigenous scholarly class, worth considering. As I said earlier, cities in Kasarhausa were by no means ethnically and culturally homogenous. And one of the significant minority groups within the region was the aforementioned pastoralist nomads. These people are the Fulbe, though you might have heard of them under other names. In English, they are often called Fulani, coming from the Hausa language name for their people. French speakers might have heard of them under the name Peol, deriving from the Jolof name for their culture. The fact that Jolof and Hausa, two languages from opposite sides of the Sahel, are used for different names for the Fulbe is quite telling about the geographic distribution of the Fulbe population. The Fulbe people's ethnogenesis is generally traced back to the region of northern Senegal and southern Mauritania. These ancestral fulbe lived a life that would become entrenched as the traditional fulbe lifestyle, nomadic pastoralism. The history of pastoralism in West Africa began around 10,000 years ago. In Europe and Asia, the Ice Age was coming to an end. Meanwhile, Saharan Africa was enjoying a prolonged humid period, which allowed the Sahara region to sustain a dry grassland climate, not unlike the famous African savannas of today. In addition to lions, giraffes, elephants, and other animals that people associate with the savannah, the Sahara was also once populated by a peculiar type of bovine, the aurochs, or the ancestor of modern cattle. I don't want to go into a long spiel about the history of cattle domestication, though do look it up sometime, it's oddly fascinating. Long story short, these Saharan cattle were gradually domesticated and mixed with distinct bovine lineages that had also recently arisen from separate domestications in the Middle East and especially India to form the modern African cattle gene pool. Maybe. The origin of cattle is actually not super well understood and, again, surprisingly controversial, but yeah. I wasn't kidding when I said that you should look it up. The rise of domesticated cattle was both caused by and the cause of the rise of cattle pastoralism. You see, prior to the emergence of pastoralism, the primary method of food production among humans was hunting and gathering. Bands of nomadic humans followed the migrating herds of game animals, hunting them as they moved from field to field. So, what is pastoralism? Well, pastoralism can be described kind of like, what if we did the hunting and gathering, but we control the herds of animals that we eat? So, instead of following around a herd of wild aurochs, and occasionally doing your best to hunt them, you protect a herd of domesticated cattle, move them to a new grazing field, letting them chow down, and then move on to a new one, getting milk and meat all the while. By roughly 3,000 years ago, the Zahara had long since dried up to the point where it could no longer sustain human settlement outside of the occasional desert oasis. Cattle pastoralism had long since spread throughout the rest of the continent and the world, including the areas of modern Senegal and Mauritania. These pastoral peoples were the ancestors of the Fulbe. Pastoralism would remain the primary staple means of food production among the Fulbe for thousands of years, with many still continuing the practice to this day. Throughout the ages, the Fulbe invented several solutions to the challenges of a nomadic lifestyle. Rather than living in settled, permanent towns, Fulbe nomads lived in a type of improvised structure called a buccaru, these were small, yurt-like structures that used thatched mats that were balanced between wooden supports to provide shelter from the elements. Bukkarus could be disassembled in just a few dozen minutes and reassembled in little more than an hour by an experienced herdsman. Over time, the full bay would also gradually breed new types of cattle, better suited to the semi-arid environment of the Sahel. The Fulani cattle, as they would come to be known, were renowned for their unusual combination of drought-resistance, heat-resistance, and high milk production. Full-based social institutions also adapted to the pastoral lifestyle. One instance of this is habayana, a practice in which one person will loan another person a fertile cow. And it's truly a loan. The cow is not to be beaten or injured in any way, much less killed. Then, when that cow has calves, those calves belong to the loanee, and the adult cow goes back to the original owner. Think of it as the pastoral version of a nice little interest-free loan to help your friend's business get off the ground. Like many other nomadic peoples around the world, the Fulbe quickly developed an association not only with pastoral herding, but also with trade. Since pastoralists like the Fulbe frequently migrated long distances between the many series of pastures to keep their cows fed, it was a certainty that they passed by multiple settled sedentary agricultural villages along the way. This meant that the Fulbe could easily take a short detour, buy some goods from the people in town, and then transport them elsewhere to resell for a nice little profit, with very little extra effort on their part. Through a combination of their position on the northern fringes of the Sahel and their nomadic semi-mercantile lifestyle, it was inevitable that the Fulbe came into a great deal of contact with the Islamic peoples from their north, namely the Amazigh. The contact with the Amazigh, combined with their system of inheritance, allowed the Islamic faith to spread incredibly quickly among Fulbe nomads. You see, unlike most of their neighbors, the Fulbe most likely practiced a patrilineal system of inheritance even before the introduction of the Islamic faith. And believe me when I say that this is much more important than it sounds. You see, the adoption of the Islamic faith is typically coupled with the adoption of a few important shared cultural customs one of which is the adoption of the Islamic system of patrilineal inheritance. Now, this was no big deal to the Fulbe, they were already doing that anyway, so like, who cares? But if you were in a society with matrilineal inheritance, this change was a potential deal-breaker. Shifting around how inheritance worked could potentially threaten your future power and wealth if you were an elite in that society. Remember the Bayejida epic? Well, one important detail of the story is that, in the process of introducing Islam to Daura, Abu Yazid also destroyed the matrilineal inheritance system. So, while the Fulbe adopted the Islamic faith with haste and enthusiasm, most of their matrilineal neighbors were more skeptical. Pretty soon after their initial introduction to the faith, Islam became an institution thoroughly woven into the lives and culture of the Fulbe people. Particularly the Fulbe, due to the early introduction and spread of Islam, were renowned for their adherence to a more recognizable orthodox form of Sunni Islam. As I said earlier, this was not necessarily unique to the Fulbe. but what made it more unusual was that this practice of orthodox Islam, that resembled more what was practiced in North Africa or the Middle East, was not contained to a minority of scholars and wealthy Islamic nobles, but rather was also the norm among common herdsmen. Unfortunately, Fulbe history is going to have to be sidelined a little bit too, Again, this is an interesting topic, one that I promise we've not seen the last of on this show, but to keep it moving, let's just wrap things up quickly. And as always, I heavily, heavily encourage you to read up on these topics if you're interested. And somewhere in northern Senegal and southern Mauritania, Arab documents make reference to a kingdom of Takrur. What role they played in the system, whether the Fulbe were the rulers, a subjugated people, or somewhere in between, is not known. Well, we know that this kingdom was eventually subjugated by the Empire of Wagadou, also known as the Kingdom of Ghana. And after that kingdom collapsed, the region of northern Senegal existed largely as the fringe territories of the famous Mali Empire. Then, starting around the 15th century, Fulbe history changed forever. In a long gradual process that continues to this day, the expanding Sahara Desert began exerting pressure on the lifestyle of Fulbe nomads. Many of the shrublands in northern Senegal gradually became drier and drier, to the point where they didn't grow enough to provide food for the Fulbe herds. So, massive populations of Fulbe were forced to migrate in many directions. Many went south into the areas of eastern Senegal and southern Mali, and even some as far south as Futajalon, a highland plateau in modern Guinea. Each group has their own fascinating story that runs somewhat parallel to that of Sokoto, but sadly, we can't get into it here. Meanwhile, the most important migration for our purposes went east, dispersing throughout northern Nigeria, Niger, and even as far east as the modern countries of north and south Sudan. The descendants of this gradual eastern migration will serve as the focus for the rest of our show. Unlike with other ethnic groups, where you can at least somewhat confidently map out which vague areas of the world are home to a large group of that people, you can't look at a map of, say, Nigeria, point, and say, this is the part where the Fulbe live." Not only did most of the Fulbe maintain their pastoral nomadic lifestyle, meaning that they didn't really reliably live in any one place, period, but as recent migrants to such a large area, they were essentially guaranteed to be the minority wherever they went. You might have noticed that I used a bit of a weasel word in that last statement, that most Fulbe maintained the pastoral lifestyle. Well, not all of them did. You see, moving east did help the Fulbe escape the encroaching Sahara Sands, but, well, there's a reason they hadn't moved there before. Cattle need grazing land, lots of it, preferably in uninterrupted trails that cattle can realistically traverse. In the eastern Sahel, including Kassar Hausa, most land that fits this description was either already developed into farmland, or surrounded by areas developed into farmland. While there was plenty of empty grassland, perfect for grazing, it was dispersed in a way that it was impossible for pastoralists to reach without cutting through some agrarian settlements. And this is where conflicts are born. Put yourself in the shoes of the pastoralist here. This herd of cattle represents your entire livelihood. Without it, you and your entire extended family will starve and die slowly and painfully. So, you're going to have to move the cows around so they can eat. You try to pass through a local farmstead, but one of the local people kills a few of your cows, putting you and your family's security at risk. But, think about it from the farmer's perspective too. This field of beans or millet or whatever you're growing represents your livelihood too. Without it, you and your entire family will starve and die painfully. Suddenly, a bunch of random dudes you don't know appear with an army of cattle that trample over a bunch of your crops and maybe eat some of them too. So, you're understandably upset and kill some of this guy's cows to tell him to back off and go somewhere else. Now, this isn't really a situation with a good guy or a bad guy. Just two people doing what they gotta do to protect their livelihoods but that doesn't really matter. Not only in West Africa, but really every part of the world where pastoralists and settled agriculturalists coexist in large numbers, conflicts like these happen. Many Fulbay chose to adapt to a new lifestyle. The thriving economies in the cities of Kasarhausa offered great opportunities for Fulbay to serve in more specialized urban roles. Well, in an economic region on the scale of Kasarhausa, there was a big need not only for people to carry goods from city to city, city to town, and village to city, but also for businessmen to coordinate and dispatch these complex webs of supply and demand. And then there's the mosques and universities. Throughout the world, there's kind of a stereotypical view of nomads as rural simpletons, people who are too focused on their herds to have time to read, study, or think about complex matters. In the Sahel, this couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, in relation to their agrarian neighbors, the Fulbe actually had impressively higher literacy rates. Like many elements of Fulbe culture, the emphasis on literacy can be traced back to the introduction of Islam. Unlike the traditional religions around them, the central object of Islamic practice is a book, the Quran. So literacy was no mere luxury to West African Muslims, but a necessity for proper religious practice. Childhood education for young fulbe often included the practice of hifs, or memorization, in which students learned how to read and remember important passages of the Qur'an. Therefore, when mosques and universities went looking for new additions to their faculty, preferably those with a strong knowledge of the Qur'an and other Islamic texts, a disproportionate number of those who answered the call were fulbe. These fulbe abandoned their herds to work in academia, writing treatises on Islamic law, philosophy, science, economics, and countless other fields. Some famous examples of Fulbe scholars include Muhammad ibn Muhammad al-Fulani al-Kishwani, an 18th century mathematician from Katsina who became famous for his mathematical studies of magic squares, or a mathematical array in which the vertical, horizontal, and diagonal sums of the array are all equal, as well as astronomy and religious mysticism. Another famous Fulbe scholar of the 18th century is Salih bin Muhammad al-Umari al-Fulani, Al-Fulani was a famous jurist and legal scholar, noted for his impassioned defense of lay people being capable of forming their own opinions on Islamic law, and that blindly following the advice of an imam was tantamount to not understanding the law at all. He was quite famous in his day, and even spent his later years as the equivalent of international faculty, working in the universities of Medina in modern Saudi Arabia. And it's worth noting that these men were two among thousands of Fulbe working in scholarly positions throughout West Africa, North Africa, and the Middle East. While the nomadic Fulbe continued to practice their own cultural traditions, the Fulbe who settled in the city typically adopted the culture of their urban peers. In Hausa, while nomadic Fulbe continued to speak Fufulde, their native language, the urban Fulbe began to speak Hausa in increasing numbers. With many younger generations slowly even forgetting their ancestral language. They ate the same foods, prayed in the same manner, and some even adopted Hausalas names. And it was from this class of urban Fulbe scholars that the central figure of the coming political and social upheaval would derive. Join us in two weeks as we continue our mini series and introduce the future commander of the faithful himself, the famous Sheikh Uthman Danfodil. As stated earlier, this episode was dedicated to, and brought to you by, our patrons on Patreon. Many people support the show, and among the top supporters of the show are the following. Naomi Kanakia, Ayo Fagbamie, Morgan Blackmore, Sarah Mpenza, Tobias Tungland, Dimitri, Emmanuel Zaudi, Alexander Travis, Bibi Milliam, Conrad Schwenke, Travis Bell, Johnny Knowles, Ose Kwame, Godfrey Sebelabie, Diz R.H., Evan Edwards, Pascal Nwokocha, Joe Maxwell, Nkechi Nwabodike, Sheyun Olorontimain, Kwajo Amankwa, Douglas Harder, and Edward Bolton, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really means a lot.